0: Why wash watch wash watch? back again to the Bad Quaker Podcast, where liberty is our mission. Today is Friday, May 24th, 2013. This is podcast number 318, and my name is Ben Stone. There will be no announcements today due to the nature of our podcast today. The title of today's podcast is Beyond Civil Disobedience, Part 1. This is going to be about actions with purpose within the Zero Aggression Principle. This will be a multi-part series. I'm not sure exactly how many parts there will be on it, and I will go back and uh, steal some from a couple previous podcasts that I've done on this topic, so it's not all going to be brand new material, but it will be consistent with what I've been saying over the course of this podcast, over the course of years that I've been doing it. Today in this podcast, I'm not going to be super specific with things, I need to lay some groundwork, I need to, you know, before you can build something new, you have to tear down what's already there, so today's going to be some tearing down, and some of it may not be real comfortable, but it's things that need to be said, so I'm, I'm not producing today's podcast to try to step on anybody's toes i'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings but it's time that we get very serious about this now in the situation that we're in today um we've got a lot of very important activists that are behind bars some under really bad circumstances you know you think about peter schiff's dad erwin schiff uh is in jail probably for the rest of his life and you can you can just keep listing activists that are within our movement all the way up to the recent arrest of uh, of Adam Kokesh. and Adam Kokesh, you know is a is a very controversial individual. there's A lot of people saying a lot of different things about him, so I'm not saying anything to support him or condemn him. That's not the purpose of today's podcast whatsoever. I'm using him as an example along with Erwin Schiff. You know, Erwin Schiff made mistakes, and and that's why he's in jail for the rest of his life. Um, Maybe it was necessary for him to make those mistakes. I don't know. I can't judge him on all that. But what I'm saying is we have a lot of people that would be very useful to us if they were free and they're not they're behind prison bars and many of them are going to be there for years and years to come uh i hope that's not the case with adam i hope adam can get out and i hope he can do that fairly quickly i don't know you know enough about the case to really uh, comment on it that much i do know that this this is a statement that Adam Kokesh made to uh, Alex Jones on Alex Jones's show. Uh, this was May sixth, two thousand thirteen, in reference to the uh, the upcoming gun march on Washington D.C. And this is exact word for word quote: Adam said, "Alex, this is an armed revolt against the American government. Make no mistake about it." Now, Adam said that on alex jones's radio show and then uh you know to make a long story short adam went to a 420 marijuana pro marijuana rally that he had been going to regularly up in uh, philadelphia and uh out of nowhere uh something that the phil that had not happened in philadelphia prior um the cops swarmed in snatched him out of the crowd very suspicious, well, not suspicious, just ridiculous claims. Um, And now he's in jail, and we don't know how long he's going to be in there. We don't know, you know. um, We can't afford this kind of losses. If you think of Rich Paul, what happened with Rich Paul up there in New Hampshire, you know, Rich is probably one of the most peaceful, kind individuals you'll ever find. And uh, right now he's facing the possibility of 20 years in a federal penitentiary for possessing plants, for for you know, for selling uh, plant material to another human being, for a voluntary exchange, and um, and keeping in mind that 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 happened, you know, the feds came in and set him up in that, and um, you know, I believe in all likelihood he probably was selling the stuff that he's accused of selling. That's not the point. Um, the feds actually used heroin dealers and, and overlooked, made deals with the heroin dealer um, to get to Rich Paul, who is accused of, or I guess found guilty of, uh, selling marijuana. So, so the if it was really about a war on drugs, then why did the feds pass the heroin dealer to get the pot dealer? I mean, that's if, if you just look at it, assuming all the things that they're accusing are correct, Why would the feds pass up a heroin dealer to get a pot dealer? Rich Paul was taken out of our movement and thrown in jail and probably will be for a very long time because of his activism within our movement, not because of a stupid plant. But the plant gave the opportunity for them to do this. And so we have to think these things through, and we have, to, we have to seriously, we have to get real about this, and we have to recognize how important this battle is. And we have to recognize that we can't keep, we can't afford to keep taking this kind of losses. We can't fight a war of attrition against the government. We can't, you know, some people have said that, well, they can't lock us all up. Yes, yes they can. Yes, they can. And if you don't believe it, you just watch them. They'll do it. Uh, one little country that I can think of, off the, top of my ha- uh, off the top of my head, rounded up something like six million people. If you don't think they can round us up and lock us away, you are sorely mistaken. They can make, uh, they can set up an entire agency just for rounding us up if they wanted to. This is not the way to defeat the state. Playing the games of the government, playing into the hands of the government, is not the way to win this battle. We have to take it serious. We have to realize that there's too much at stake for us to go into this blindly or naively. You want to fight this fight? You really want to fight this fight? You're brave? You want to get up there? You want to do something? You want to make a difference? Don't do it foolishly. I've talked many, many times before about Fighting Mike Tyson. I realize Mike Tyson is an old, washed up boxer, but I've been saying this since Mike Tyson was in shape and on the top of the game. And the story is the same today as it was back then. If you're going to fight Mike Tyson, you're a fool if you put on gloves and step into the ring with him. The only way to fight Mike Tyson is to sneak up behind him when he's asleep and hit him in the head with a board. Now, I'm not advocating violence against Mike Tyson. That's not my point. My point is you do not fight an enemy according to your enemy's strengths. You do not take your enemy on uh, nose to nose when your enemy is the strongest, massive, giant, the biggest crime gang gang that has ever existed in human history. And that's what the United States government is. And if you take on the United States government according to its rules and according to the way it wants you to fight, it will win. It will beat you. You will lose. Now, those are just facts. I'm not attacking any one individual. I'm not saying, I'm not even saying that, like I said, the the name of today's episode is Beyond Civil Disobedience Part 1. I'm not even attacking civil disobedience, although I'm going to talk about the flaws of civil disobedience in a minute. But what I'm telling you is that we have to learn how to fight this smart, and we have to learn how to fight this with specific directions so that we are moving in a way that will bring us victory, not in a way that we just get more and more and more of us shoved into prisons. That's not going to help. It does not help. Martyrs do not help. We have in front of us a wide assortment of weapons and a broad, diverse uh, support base. If we play this correctly... We can win with minimal losses. But if we play it foolishly, they're going to chew us up. They will chew us up. You look at what happened in Boston. You look at the efforts that went against one stupid 19-year-old kid. Look at the efforts that went against him. Now, I realize that he was you know, accused of being a bad person. He's a terrorist, a bomber, a murderer, all these bad things. But they can demonize any one of us just as badly. And they can and they have and they will. If you get in their radar, they will take you down. They will have no problems making an example out of you or me, just like they did those people, uh, the Branch Davidians in Waco, just like they did Randy Weaver and his family on Ruby Ridge. They have no qualms doing that. If we play this game foolishly, we are doomed to pass the fight on to another generation. Now, let me just remind you something here. I fully believe that... There are lost opportunities in history to have shut down this process, this beast that's growing, this this uh, current manifestation of the state, this monster that we face. They, I believe in history there have been lost opportunities when this could have been squished. Uh, you know, I've talked before about the origin of uh, the, the very first city-state that we know of was in Jericho. Well, You know, had something happened, we know that Jericho's on fault lines, and it's been devastated by earthquakes at times. There were moments in history that had the farmers in the surrounding farms around in the valley in the Jordan River Valley there. If they had rose up at key times and purged that valley of those statists that were locked into that city state, if those peasants, if those farmers, could have done that at some moment in time then we quite possibly wouldn't have a state today because that's where it was birthed and that's where it survived, that's where it was nurtured for a millennial. Um, actually, I think it was like 2,000 years before the next manifestation of the state um, came into being. So, um, And there have been other opportunities to at least bring this thing to its knees, if not destroy it altogether. In 1789, there the, when the Constitution was being pushed through that could have been stopped. If those, if those people who had fought the British had put the same effort into fighting the oppression that was about to be dumped on their heads, then, then the Constitution never would have been adopted. The federal government never would have been adopted. And the Articles of Confederation were weak enough that, uh, that human beings could have remained free under those circumstances or at least relatively free. And it would have hindered the growth of the state dramatically. It may not have defeated it in the long run, but it would have hindered it dramatically. Another uh, critical moment in time was in 1860 when the uh, the southern states formed the Confederacy and decided to fight against this federal bureaucracy that that the uh, United States government had become. And the key mistake that they made was they thought they could fight the this beast by creating another beast. A key moment happened there when if there had been wiser leaders, if there had been, uh, you know, people who could see a little bit beyond the end of their own nose, they could have played that situation differently and severely hampered the growth of the state, if not crushed it. That could have happened, but it didn't. It was a lost opportunity. In 1913. When the Federal Reserve was formed and when uh, income tax was dumped on the American people, at that moment, the American people could have stopped this from happening, but they failed to act. They bought the story that they were being sold. They bought the lies that they were being told, and they allowed this, this current manifestation of the beast to take place. They sat back and they watched what was happening and they nodded their heads and they let it be passed on for another generation to try to deal with. In 1969, there was a huge worldwide movement that could have easily shifted this and stopped it, if not, if not stopped it, at least slowed it down dramatically, at least thrown a monkey wrench into the gears. But it didn't because there were specific flaws in the peace movement of the 1960s. And now we have today. We have another opportunity. We are facing a moment in time where we can do something in preparation of seeing the end of the state. This this is a, cr- a critical time for us, and it's a critical time for history. Now, you know, there's this phenomenon, and I didn't look up the word there's because it's, it's escaped my mind temporarily, but there's this, um, this kind of a self-centered belief that, that many generations have, a lot of generations have, if not all generations, that they are the magical generation that's going to see the end of the world. And for you know, for a lot of Christians, uh, each generation of Christians think they're the ones that are going to see Jesus return. And, and the same thing manifests itself in various different religions. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the end of the world or any kind of doomsday thing or anything like that. I'm talking about we just like several other times in history have a unique opportunity to either stop the growth of the state or to or or to crush it entirely. It's before us. We may not be prepared to handle what we're about to be what we're about to face and in which case we're going to have to go through another cycle and our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren are going to have to go through this battle all over again hopefully they'll do it right if we can't accomplish it but we have this opportunity today one of the things i want to emphasize in today's podcast is that there's a wide variety of parts that each one of us can play. You know, I was talking about Adam Kokesh, and I was talking about Rich Paul. Uh, there's a lot of activists that are are doing a lot of stuff that that is very visual and very. Um, you know uh, it gains the headlines and it gains attention of a lot of people but there's lots of different parts that all of us can play that are just as critical if not more important than what adams doing or what uh, anybody else who's who's visible the 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 alex jones or whoever there's things that individuals can do there's parts to be played that are more important than any of those things that are in the background and that are unseen you can't let your mind think that activism is limited to one thing you can't you can't let your mind uh... fall into that trap of thinking well if i'm not marching i'm not an activist if i'm not talking on the radio i'm not an activist if i'm not calling my local call-in show i'm not an activist no you gotta get your mind out of that and you have to realize that the, it, it, we are all individuals and each one of us has a part to play in this we don't all have to move to san francisco and put flowers in our hair it, that's that's one of the flaws that can limit a movement. Is thinking that everybody has to behave the same. We're not a, we're not collectivism. We we have to allow ourselves to be individuals because it's individuals that are going to beat collectivism. It's not individuals attempting to become collectivists so that we can beat collectivism. That's not how it's done. We have to find our own uh, our own way of doing this. Our, each of us our own unique way of doing this. Now, we can learn a lot from the peace movement. It's a good example that we can, that we can really think about and we can really learn from. Um, if you think about it, the whole anti-war, hippie, freedom, free love, f- flower power, youth, you know, tune in, turn on, drop out, all of that stuff from the 60s, it all depended on the continuation of one thing, the draft it wasn't about the Vietnam War. It wasn't about freedom. It wasn't about drugs. It wasn't about love. It was. It all hinged on this one thing the draft. Now, one man figured this out, and one man killed that whole peace movement Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman was the visionary that could see that the only way to effectively run a military state was with a voluntary army. Eliminate the draft. You kill the peace movement, and then all you have to do is create economic incentives for the poor people to join the military. Now, Milton Freeman understood this, and he went and actively argued uh, with, with top-level people in the government and in the Pentagon and explained to them, this is your only option. This is the only way that you're going to have the efficiency to keep this thing going. Otherwise, those hippies out there are going to win. You have to have a military that's motivated by a blend of radical, patriotic, uh, lower-level officers and economically desperate foot soldiers. Now, the upper parts of the military, the pentagon levels and up up in the higher parts of the military they don 't have to be radically patriotic and they 're certainly not going to be economically desperate. Those people can be typical bureaucrats they can be the typical you know uh, nasty generals and and bureaucrats and all those things that we hate about the military. They can be all those things that 's fine but for this for this military industrial complex to work properly, for it to work efficiently the way the mind of somebody like uh, Milton Friedman uh, wants efficiency and the way he wants things to work in a a logical pattern. In order for that to take place, the mid-level and lower officers have to be radically patriotic and you have to have your foot soldier level uh, recruited out of the poorest people in society, driven into the military through economic incentives. And so they're, they're economically desperate, and that's why they go into there. And now you can brainwash them in the way you need, and you can get anything out of them that you want. Milton Friedman killed the peace movement and set the foundation for permanent war in 1973 Now, um, when I come back from this break, I'm going to talk a little bit about 1973 and about the conservative mindset of 1973. And I'm not here to condemn Milton Friedman. I don't think he was a bad man. I don't think he had bad intentions. But uh, but we'll get into that when I come back from this commercial break. Stick with me. How would you like to do something to support BadQuaker.com? Here's how easy it is. If you're already going to buy something from Amazon, go to badquaker.com first. Click on any of the buttons for Amazon. Once at Amazon, shop like you normally would. You'll pay the same price for the things you buy from Amazon, but Amazon will give badquaker.com a tiny portion of that purchase. It's amazingly easy to shop at Amazon. It won't cost you any extra, and you'll be supporting badquaker.com. Thank you. Thanks for sticking with me through the break. Now, I was talking about 1973, Milton Friedman, and the conservative mindset of 1973. Uh, I, I wanted to emphasize, and I wanted to say this again, that I'm not saying that Milton Friedman was a bad man. I don't believe he I don't have any reason to believe that he was. I don't think that he was uh, you know, particularly trying to harm anyone. I don't think he was even trying to build a, a giant you know, military-industrial complex. I don't think that was his goal. I believe that Milton Friedman, um, and, and I have based this on everything that I've read of his and interviews that I've seen of his, I believe that he was the kind of a person who just saw a system and thought, you know what, it would run better if it did this. It would run more efficiently if you did that. You know, if you just tweak this a little bit, this would operate better. And I believe that whenever Milton Friedman saw a f- a flaws in a system It was his nature to attempt to correct those flaws. It was not his nature to evaluate the morality of the particular system. So uh, for this reason, when Milton Friedman looked around him and he saw, you know, waves and waves and waves of angry and disgruntled teenagers and and 20-somethings, and he saw the shift, the social shift that was taking place, and he saw that. Really, government was in a desperate situation. In the early 70s, the conservative mind, you know, um, I'll, I'll take my dad, for instance. Uh, we were living in in the late 60s. We were living in the Bay Area of California. And uh, my dad was looking around, seeing everything that was going on in, in the hippie scene, all the, you know, the anti-war movements and all the free love and all the flower power and all that kind of stuff that was going on. We were right there in the heart of it and i remember my dad wasn't bothered by that in the least my dad would you know my mom would worry a lot she was she would listen to the news and she would listen to all the hype and the and the paranoia that was on tv and you know that the radio people were talking about and everything and she was really worried that all these evil hippies were going to do something bad or the evil bikers were going to do something bad. And, you know, my dad was had been a biker for years and years back in the 40s and 50s. And he had a little bit better understanding of the mind of a biker. And he would tell my mom, oh, those bikers don't have any. They, they're not going to harm us. You need to stop listening to that nonsense on TV. Bikers have no reason to harm anybody. And, you know, in reference to the hippies, he would say, they don't want to harm anybody. They are just they just want to be happy. They just want to have fun. And that was his attitude about all of, of what was going on uh, with that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, my mom would be uh, paranoid sometimes. She didn't want to go to certain restaurants in certain neighborhoods around uh, the San Jose area because there were so many hippies. And she was afraid they were going to, you know, put LSD in the ketchup or something like this. I don't know what she thought. But you know, my dad would say, "Look, they. This is not. This is not how they behave. This is not what they're trying to do. We. You know, you need to just relax. They're not your enemies. They're just kids having fun." And that was his attitude about it. But then, you know, as we started to watch what was going on uh, around 1969, 1970, and the shifts in the way the government was dealing with things. And, um, and then I think for my dad, the key was in, uh, I believe it was 71, when Nixon uh, imposed wage and price controls and closed the, the gold window. And my dad saw that and went, you know, basically, I mean, this is not his words, but be, he basically went, holy crap, I got to get my family out of here. And uh, very quickly, my dad sold uh, almost everything we owned in California and uh, loaded everything that we had left into a... uh, He bought a moving van, and uh, um, he loaded pretty much everything we had into that moving van, and we took off and left the West Coast. And he brought us all back into the hills of Kentucky and eastern Kentucky, and he bought the old family place that had been uh, in the family since it was homesteaded in the 1790s. And, um, you know, he thought... This was, again, 71, 72. He fully expected a financial collapse at that time because he looked at what was going on with the government. He, he looked at the shift that was taking on, uh, taking place in society. He looked at the riots that were happening in the big cities. And, you know, my dad was very realistic. He saw the difference between the hippie movement and what they were doing and the levels of anger that were developing in the inner cities. And he saw that this was this was a particular formula that could turn out really, really bad if a couple things went wrong. And it looked like a couple things were going to go wrong, especially with the wage and, and price controls and uh, uh, closing the gold window that Nixon did. That was just like, um, you know, that was just dressing on the salad. And, he, and and my dad could see it all coming at him. Now, I'm sure Milton Friedman was probably seeing things along the same Route. Milton Friedman has said that the price and wage controls, of course, you know, Friedman was anti gold, so he had no problem with, with Nixon closing the gold window. But, but Friedman also saw those price and wage controls as being devastating to the economy, which they were. They were devastating, 10 years that, uh, of devastation from that stupid act of, of Nixon's. But, uh, but Friedman saw that, and he saw the, the need to take action. And again, I'm not saying he was a bad man. I'm not saying, you know, uh, I'm not judging his morality in doing this. But Friedman saw that the one thing that he could do to pacify this whole situation was if he could end the draft, then it would take away a good chunk of the anger. It would take the fire out of the fight. And he, and, but he couldn't do that on his own. He went to people in the Pentagon. He had people like uh, uh, Westmoreland, the general that was the, 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 basically the mastermind of the Vietnam War. Uh, Westmoreland couldn't see at all how this could possibly work. He thought it was just a crazy scheme of uh, Friedman's. And, uh, and so Friedman had significant enemies to fight against to try to end the draft. And eventually, in 73, he was able to do that. He was able to convince conservatives that the draft was the opposite of helpful to the military. And he was able to convince conservatives that what they needed to do was eliminate the draft. And in doing that, it would do two things. It would kill the peace movement. It would kill kill it dead. And, and part of the killing the peace movement, it would also kill a lot of the anger in the inner cities. It would just put a big wet blanket right on the anger of the inner cities. Just that one thing. And the other thing it would do is it would actually strengthen the military. It would not weaken the military. Anybody who can really think this through should be able to really quickly realize that a volunteer army is much more inf- effective than an enslaved army. Enslavement never produces your best workers. Voluntary workers are always your most enthusiastic and your best workers. Well, the same is true with the military. Do you want to lead a bunch of slaves? And, and Friedman actually said this to Westmoreland. Do you want to lead lead a bunch of slaves? Is that what you want? Is that what you want your military to be? You see, voluntary people can get a whole lot more accomplished than those who are being whipped. So that was Friedman's brilliant plan to fix not only this, this looming danger against the government of all these young people who were just sick of the war. They were sick of being held down. They were sick of being pushed around. They were sick of having, having members of their group yanked out, sent to Vietnam, and shot dead or come back with, with that dead glaze in their eyes from seeing the terror of war. So Friedman saw that, and he saw that it could be fixed, and he also saw that the military could be fixed at the same time, those two things. Society could be fixed, well, you know, to a certain extent, and the military could be fixed, all by just eliminating the draft. That's it. That's all you have to do. You don't even have to eliminate it completely. You can maintain the potential for the draft. You just eliminate the actual execution of the draft. So Selective services still exists. young men still have to register the actual act of snatching them away and sending sending them to war ended in 1973 and it threw a giant wet blanket on the hate and the anger in the inner cities and it killed the peace movement. It left nothing but a bunch of uh, a bunch of leftover hippies wandering around. That's pretty much what it did and this was because Friedman sought uh, an He sought efficiency. He sought efficiency in the government, in society, in the military. And this is how he thought he would solve the problem. But this goes back to Bastiat's uh, warning. You know, the good economist, the good economist, sees not only a solution uh, to an immediate problem, but the good economist looks beyond and says, what will this do down the road? What is the long term effect of this? We can see that which is seen, but what's going to happen? What is that which is not seen? To be able to foresee the unseen is the distinguished, uh, distinguishing characteristic between the good economist and the bad economist. And therefore, Milton Freeman was not a good economist because I'm sure that if you could sit down and show Milton Freeman what has become of the military-industrial complex today, I'm sure that it wouldn't be that difficult to show him that had the draft continued, it would have crushed the ability of the state to continue in, uh, in growing the way that it was growing. But by killing the draft, Friedman allowed what we have today. Let's back up just slightly from here. Modern government, like we know it today, that the state has manifested upon us, modern government requires four things. Modern government requires the control of the money supply, the control of the media, the complacency of the general public, and modern government requires a permanent state of war with a military willing to turn on the public if need be. That's four things that modern government absolutely requires. During the 20th century, that that beast, the state, made four critical advancements in a 100 years. The first one was the adoption of fascism by instituting the Federal Reserve System and the introduction of income tax. Now, let's just set the stage a little bit here for what we're talking about. Again, you you might think, well, what's this got to do with the topic today? Well, again, um, we have to tear down what's already built there if we're going to build up something new. And so I have to deconstruct what's already in your mind if I'm going to construct a solution to the problem that we face. So during the 20th century, there were four critical advancements that the state made that allowed government to grow the way that we see it today. The first one was the adoption of the Federal Reserve and the introduction of the income tax. Now keep in mind that the, uh, the Federal Reserve system and the introduction of income tax, what they called the millionaire tax, was sold to the American people as a cure for the so-called robber barons and their evil trusts that they were that they were uh, destroying America with. And um, it was seen as a cure for these dirty bankers that were destroying the economy. Now, keep in mind that around 1900, uh, you know, the economy was booming. Um, employment was great. Pa- uh, wages were great. Things were improving every day. But there was this, um, by demonizing this small group of what they called robber barons, and by demonizing Demonizing the trusts, Um, you know, people like Teddy Roosevelt and other monsters like that of the day, uh, they were demonizing bankers, they were demonizing the trusts, and they were demonizing the robber barons while they were taking their money and doing all this stuff for them. It was, a, it was a hand-in-hand situation. But by doing all this, they convinced the people that the only solution to this was to bring in these new, uh, these new solutions, the Federal Reserve and the millionaire tax. Of course, the millionaire tax didn't stay for millionaires very long. Now, number two, the first one again was uh, the Federal Reserve system and the income tax. Now, number two was the complete control of the broadcast media the, the, the governments needed complete control of the broadcast media. In the U.S., this started in 1912 with the Radio Act of 1912. This was an excuse that uh, the, or the excuse that was used was the sinking of the Titanic and the inability of the radio people to, to get a clear, uh, you know, to get clear communications in reference to that. So that was the excuse that was the uh, that was the disaster that allowed the ratcheting of of Leviathan to take place. That was the camel 's nose under the tent. the radio act of nineteen twelve government intruded into something that had been free um, the radio act of nineteen twenty seven the radio act of nineteen twelve also created some problems first off. In lots of America, there were only two uh, frequencies that were allowed to be used. Um, now, this is different out in the ocean. You could have an emergency frequency, and then you could have a second frequency. But in, on, in the United States, and you know, within the landlocked areas of the United States, uh, there were only allowed two frequencies. One was supposed to be for you know crop reports and weather reports and and that kind of related stuff. And then there was the other frequency. Well, now you've got a problem if you've only got one available frequency. Um, then, you know, how, how do you have any decent radio going on? How, how can you have any competition? So there were radio stations that were popping up that were walking on each other, so to speak. And so this creates, so the Radio Act of 1912 created all kinds of problems. So the Radio Act of 1927 comes in to solve these problems and get more frequency, to, to allow the permission to have more frequencies. That was the excuse for the Radio Act of 1927. Also, there was a problem that, uh, you know, a lot of people were making a big fuss about. Prior to the Radio Act of 1927, um, you could say anything you wanted on the radio. Now, I don't I don't find a lot of history written about this. There probably is, but I don't find a lot of history written about this. So I have to go strictly on what my own grandfather told me about growing up in this time frame. And... Um, and this is maybe a good reason why we need to have we need to really spend time talking to old people talking to them about their childhood and about what things were like then and and what their memory was of of times like that but uh but my grandfather um recalled those days uh early radio days prior to 1927 and the fact that you know what we consider naughty words uh oh no you know uh, we can't have that on the radio now well it was on there before 1927. There was no restrictions at all. You could say anything you wanted on the radio. And, you know, the the, the goody two-shoes, the, uh, the people were upset about this, and so the government brings in a, a, sol- a solution. The problem was the Radio Act of 1927 really didn't have teeth to it. It was, you know, the camel was pushing further under the tent, but it really didn't have the teeth to accomplish what the government wanted. By 1934, 19, yeah, yeah, 1934 the FCC was born, and that was teeth in the dragon's mouth. Um, it pretty much created a situation where the big networks, you know, uh, NBC, CBS, these guys, they took over radio. There was still some private radios, but really and truly, the uh, FCC in 1934, that uh, the creation of the FCC, um, brought in true fascism into the radio industry, and uh, and and the big radio um, corporations worked hand in hand with the government to introduce fascism into communications. Um, this happened in parallel with the development in the movie industry uh, of, um, uh, of of censorship in the movie industry in the early twenties and all the way up into the late twenties. You know, through the Roaring Twenties. Uh, there was um, a lot of uh, what we would consider explicit or, or, you know, very very much adult material that was common in movies. A lot of people don't realize this today because it's it's pretty much been purged from American culture. But there was a lot of what we would consider adult material in the movies, and there was a lot of people who were pushing, trying to get the government to censor this. And you had people. Uh, this is going on from the late nineteen or the late eighteen hundreds all the way up into the nineteen thirties, and people uh, from Mark Twain to H.L. Mencken tried to fight this censorship, but to no avail. By the nineteen thirties, government was the solution for all problems, and so uh, by nineteen thirty four, when the FCC stood up. And, um, and cut off radio from using any kind of profanity or anything like that. When that happened, Hollywood realized that they were next. And so Hollywood sort of voluntarily self-regulated, and they brought in um, a really draconian rules upon themselves to keep the government from swooping in on the movie industry the way it had done on, uh, on the radio industry. So in this... In that time frame from 1912 until 1934, uh, the United States government and other governments were acting similarly in different settings and so forth. But within that time frame, the United States government took control. Of the broadcast media in the United States. And it was just a matter of time till all newspapers fell into line, all communications, you know, later as television developed, same thing. The rules were already there because the FCC was already in existence. And so government got control of broadcast media. Now that leaves two more things the public commun- uh, cooperation with the New Deal fascism, and uh, that includes the income tax. And the adoption of permanent war. When I get back from this break, I'm going to touch on those and then we're going to get into the real topic of today's podcast. Keeping in mind... As I said, this is laying the groundwork for a series. So today, we're tearing down what exists, and then we're going to talk about building back. We're going to talk about how, actually, we're going to talk about how we can finish the tearing down process, how we can take this state from what it is and drop it to the ground and lop its head off. And then we're going to get into specific stuff we can do. Stick with me. I'll be right back. Badquaker.com uses HostGator as our web hosting service. It was fast and easy to set up, and the support we receive is top-notch. They have a helpful and friendly 24-7, 365 live technical support and a 99.9% uptime guarantee. And they have some of the best prices in the business. If you have a website or if you want to have a website, check them out by going to badquaker.com first. Click the button for HostGator. And thank you for supporting badquaker.com. Okay, we're in the final run here, and I hope I can get through today's notes before I run out of time. I have a tendency to do that. I'll make two hours' worth of notes and try to cram them into one-hour podcast. All right, so we were talking about the four things that happened during the 20th century that allowed the beast to grow to what it is today, the four critical advancements that the state has made during the 20th century. And I talked about the adoption of fascism through the Federal Reserve System and the introduction of income tax. Then I talked about uh, the complete control of the broadcast media, and number 3 was the public cooperation with the new deal fascism and the income tax the income tax was introduced like i said in 1913 but it was that millionaire tax and it really affected very few people at all but by the by the end of world war 2 everybody was affected by the income tax it had become something that the government had really wanted it be, to become in the whole in the first place, the problem was with public cooperation. Um, the New Deal in the 1930s, the New Deal was pure fascism. Uh, I, I'm not going to waste a, a whole podcast talking about that, although I could. But that's been covered over and over and over. The New Deal was just simply fascism. That's all it was. And and to a large extent, there was a lot of resistance to the New Deal. But by the end of World War II, um, World War II had put – you know, the Depression was bad. Some parts of the Depression were really bad. But World War II in the United States, a lot of people don't realize there were rationing of gas, rationing of sugar. You couldn't just go out and buy a new set of tires. All these things were rationed. uh, they They went around and collected people's uh, drippings grease drippings from their from their uh, you know uh, from like when you uh, cook bacon or you cook ham or you uh, fry up hamburger or whatever they wanted you to save all of your grease drippings and they would collect those. For the war effort, and a lot of people don't realize the level of sacrifice that the individual made within the United States, within Canada, and in England, and other places too. Uh, The the level of uh, of sacrifice that was made during World War II created the situation that when. That it, that it made the depression look good in many ways. So when the end of World War II finally came, and all that rationing was rolled back, and this this burst of um, of economic prosperity uh, exploded in 1945, 1946, 1947, up to 1950, when this took place it allowed the government to push that New Deal fascism in with with much less resistance. And at the same time, uh the government was – to, to file an income tax form was entirely voluntary. You could do it or you could not do it. There were cartoons. There's a very famous uh, a Donald Duck cartoon where he, you know, tugs at your patriotic heartstrings to try to get you to voluntarily fill out a uh, uh, tax forms and let the IRS know how much money you made and send them your, your taxes. It was all voluntary. And then this guy – who saw that this whole process was very inefficient this guy had this great idea he says you know what you know what here's what we need to do if we could have the government work with employers and pull out the income tax on a payday by payday basis then you wouldn't have you wouldn't have to rely on people filling out the forms every year and voluntarily paying their taxes. they'll. If you pull out a little bit too much every time that, that they get paid, you pull out the money, but you pull out a little bit too much. And then you tell them, okay, well, if you want your money back, just fill out this form, and they'll voluntarily do this. And pretty soon they'll get used to it. That guy was Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman saw that the efficient way to collect income tax was to have a payroll deduction and to pull out a little bit more than what you're supposed to pull out, and then get the people to fill out the forms to get their money back. Milton Friedman made the IRS tolerable. The, The end of World War II made the New Deal palatable. Milton Friedman made the IRS tolerable. So the third thing that we needed, or not we, the third thing the government needed for the state to advance, for this critical advancement to take place, the third thing was public cooperation with the New Deal and acceptance of the income tax. And they did that at the end of World War II. And the fourth thing was the adoption of permanent war. And again, this came at the end of World War II. as, As governments of the world... Uh, you know, took a giant breath at the end of World War II. There was all of a sudden new threats, a new kind of warfare, a Cold War. And the governments of the world had on the, on their hands the opportunity for permanent war. And this worked pretty good all the way up until the Soviet Union collapsed, and it became really difficult to justify permanent war. The governments of the world needed a new boogeyman to have permanent war. And that was given to us on September eleventh, two 2001, when the governments of the world got themselves a whole new boogeyman to fight. And so, thanks to, all, thanks to those four steps during the 20th century, we now have the state in its current manifestation. The only thing left for the maturity of the state into its final stage is the unification of the nations under a single governing body. And this is going to happen. We can't and shouldn't try to stop it. Now, think about that for a minute. And, and, and as I say this, if you pay attention through this series, you're going to think that I'm saying something that's contradicting this statement. We can't and shouldn't try to stop this process. The, government, uh, the governments of the world uh, are headed towards a single unifying, single governing body. This is the natural progression of this monster, the state. It has to go through that final stage of unification in order for it to grow to the point of where it collapses. So while I say we can't and shouldn't try to stop this final stage, I'm also saying that we're going to be there. We're going to have the opportunity. When this thing falls and hits the ground, we're going to have the opportunity to lob its head off. And we have to know how, and we have to know exactly what not to do in the buildup. But we have to know what to do as well. The struggle for unification of the nations under a single governing body will result in a violent, bloody death of the state. That's the thing we have to wait for. That's the thing we have to shoot for. That's the thing we have to hold back. You know, understanding and clarifying our role in this process is critical. Um, Think of the David and Goliath story. And whatever you might think of the Bible, just set that aside for a second. Just think of the story, the David and Goliath story. So so here's this great warrior, this giant guy, Goliath. And here's this kid. And he decides not to fight the warrior according to the way the warrior expects to fight. The warrior has, let me just describe to you this Goliath. Let's set aside the different ideas of his height. Just accept, okay, he's a big guy. All right, now he is Phoenician or what the Bible called Philistines, but he was a Phoenician, which meant he had iron armor, unlike most of the Greeks that had uh, bronze armor. The Philistines were, uh, you know, uh, Greek. Uh, Unlike most of the Greeks, the Philistines had iron armor, which made them almost invincible. Part of the legend of um, Achilles. Uh, is it's theorized that Achilles had iron armor, and that was why his armor was so considered magical, opposed to all the other Greeks that had, uh, you know, bronze armor. Okay, so Goliath had bron- had iron armor. He had on uh, the latest plate armor. Um, he was uh, he had a nice big spear that he used. He had a, a shield bearer that walked in front of him with a shield, and he would stand behind the shield bearer. And, uh, and typically fight with, uh, uh, well, first he would have a javelin to throw at a distance and then he had his spear that he would fight as he came up close. And then the last resort, the, um, the shieldman would step out of the way and he would fight with his sword. That was sort of the process. So here he comes down the mountain uh, towards the valley um, where David is, and they're going to clash. And so Goliath expects it to be a proper battle like any proper soldier would fight a proper battle. And David throws rock at him, hits him in the forehead, knocks him down, runs up, grabs his sword, and lops off his head. Now that's the way the story goes. Of course, David didn't just throw the rock. He had a sling, which was actually a very advanced uh, weapon of its day. The sling was an amazing tool. It was not a slingshot. It was a long strip of leather with a pouch in the middle, and you would uh, you would have a stone. Oftentimes, they pre-made these either out of rock or out of uh, uh, you know, dried clay, uh, ceramic, and um, so you'd want it as round as possible for a good ballistics and you would put the put your projectile in the pouch and then you would sling this thing around and round and round and round and you would uh you could obtain speeds exceeding If you think about uh, a guy can throw a baseball, a good baseball player, a good pitcher can throw a baseball player, oops, a good pitcher can throw a baseball close to 100 miles an hour. Well, if you think about it, if, if if you practiced enough with a device that gave you the mechanical advantages of about three feet on your arm, think about how fast you could throw a rock the size of a baseball. So, so a sling was not a kid's toy. A sling was an advanced piece of weaponry of the day. And uh, Goliath wasn't expecting it and had no defense against it. And that rock hit him square in the forehead and put him on the ground. But it didn't kill him. That's part of the story that I want you to see. David ran up, grabbed the sword, cut off his head, literally picked his head up by the hair and showed it to the Philistine army. Folks, we're going to do that one of these days. But you have to understand that activism can't be limited to one method. And we can't fight our enemy the way he's expecting to be fought. And we can't fight the enemy according to his strengths and according to his methods of fighting. Individuals will beat collectivism. Individuals working at what they do best not necessarily everyone getting arrested for standing for, for dancing at, at uh, you know at a, at a national monument or not everyone getting arrested for you know smoking pot on a 420 day and not everyone getting arrested for dealing drugs with a with an undercover agent not everyone getting arrested for tax evasion or some other you know thought up thing that the state throws at or that the government throws at us that's not the method for everybody that's the method for a very small group but that's not everyone's method. We have to find our individual way that we can best contribute to defeating this thing. Take a lesson from rock and roll. You know, during, uh, back when I was a kid, music was coming specifically from different cities. Uh, you know, there was this birth of rock and roll. Probably, you could consider it that way. From Nashville, where uh, you know a lot of the early rock and roll stuff came out of uh, came out of Nashville, and then there was uh, Motown. Motown had its own sound, its own unique sound, and its own um, very distinctive uh, movement. You had music coming out of New York that was very different from what Nashville Nashville was producing, and very different from Motown. We had the influence coming in from London. We had San Francisco with its own unique sound and Los Angeles with its own unique sound. And then Atlanta came into it, and Atlanta brought a whole new thing to the table. And eventually Austin came into this, and eventually Seattle came into it. And each of these things had very different twists to bring to rock and roll. All of them added something really important, and together they became the music that we know now know of as rock and roll and so i'm using that to try to explain that we need to learn that lesson from rock and roll there's no there's not one answer we can't all show up in washington dc with rifle and expect that to be the the you know the solution to all of our problems i'm not saying don't do that i'm saying well yeah don't do that i wouldn't do that but if you feel moved to do that go do that whatever But what I'm saying is there's so many ways that the individual can do these things that we can't let ourselves be locked into that one solution. Our activism has to be based on the unique characteristics of each individual. Now, uh, what I'm about to say, I'm not here to bury activism. I'm here to try to set activism free. Now we're going to take a swipe at civil disobedience. Civil disobedience is largely a pacifier. It's not useless, but it's not the real thing either. Now, let's just take a second to consider what we're doing, why we're doing it, and if we'll accomplish what it is that we want to accomplish. If we go with the dictionary definition of civil disobedience, now pay attention really careful to this, because this has a critical thing in it. Civil disobedience is a symbolic or ritualistic violation of the law rather than a rejection of the system as a whole. The civil disobedient, finding legitimate avenues of change blocked or non-existent, sees himself as obliged by a higher principle to break some specific law. By submitting to punishment, the civil disobedient hopes to set a moral example that will provoke the majority or the government, into effecting meaningful political, social, and economic change. John Rawls said in 1971 that civil disobedience is a public, nonviolent, and conscientious breach of law undertaken with the aim of bringing about a change in laws or government policies. On this account, the person who practices civil disobedience is willing to accept the legal consequences of their actions as this shows their fidelity to the rule of law. John Rawls literally wrote the book on modern political philosophy. And both of these definitions point out that an act of civil disobedience is a statement about the immorality of a specific law Well, it's still an endorsement of the legitimacy of the existing system. Remember, Rawls said, On this account, the person who practices civil disobedience are willing to accept the legal consequences of their action and as this shows their fidelity to the rule of law. An act of civil disobedience, folks, is an affirmation of the divinity of the state. That's what it is it's saying yes this law is wrong but the system is good and i can use the system to change the system no matter the intention of the anarchist an act of civil disobedience is an act of protest yet at the same time it's an act of submission to the state now i don't condemn anyone who peaceably engages in civil disobedience it can be very useful i even agree that the act of civil disobedience can and has forced government to adopt less tyrannical policies. And I agree that acts of civil disobedience can and have been used to educate and motivate people to change their views of law and change their views of government. Uh, It's very useful for this purpose, but you have to understand that civil disobedience is a pacifier for the real thing. It's not the real thing. An act of civil disobedience can influence governments to change a law or a policy. An act of civil disobedience can awaken people to a cause, and an act of civil disobedience can drive a majority to change a government. But that's it. The state remains. Ultimately, acts of civil disobedience are not directly productive to the goal of anarchy because they affirm the divinity of the state. And as I've said before, Government is not the enemy of the anarchist. The religion of the state is the enemy of the anarchist because it's faith in the state that justifies government in the eyes of the people and in the eyes of those people who act out the evils of government. The principled anarchists have to find ways to insulate themselves from the evils of government while exposing the religion of the state. The vast majority of anarchist activism must be in the fields of producing wealth, And using that wealth to educate those who can hear our argument. Now, some anarchists are not going to be able to do that. Some anarchists are going to be driven to actively fight the government. This can be productive to our cause. I'm not rejecting all, uh, but you have to do it according to wisdom and you have to maintain yourself within the zero aggression principle. Otherwise, it's going to be, it's, it's going to be the opposite of progress. You're going to do more harm than good. The zero aggression principle, okay, let me get to this really quick here so that we can wrap this up and uh, take it to the next episode where I'm going to talk about very specifics, specific things that we can do. The zero aggression principle is a moral stance which asserts that aggression is inherently illegitimate. Aggression for the purpose of the zero aggression principle is defined as the initiation of or the realistic threat of violence against a person or their legitimately owned property. Specifically, aggression is any unsolicited unsolicited action by an individual that physically affects another individual or their property, no matter if the result of that action is intended to be damaging, beneficial, or neutral. In contrast to passivism, the zero aggression principle does not preclude violence used in self-defense or in the defense of others. Anarchists should four points. Anarchist, but two at a time. Anarchists should educate people on the evils of government. The moral argument. Two, point out the failures of government when governments fail to do the things that they claim that they have the exclusive right to do. This is the practical argument. We have the moral argument. We have the practical argument. Examples of those two. Um, tax. Redistribution of wealth, confisc- confiscation laws—all Im- uh, these are all immoral. Um, putting people in cages uh, doesn't—that doesn't produce justice. You know, somebody did something. Even if they did something legitimately wrong in the in the in the libertarian mind, such as robbery or whatever, sticking them in a cage doesn't produce justice. Uh, I've gone into that before, and we can do it again sometime. But um, now let's go on to the to the practical side of this. Uh, you know, that's that. if it doesn't work, if you're putting people in cages and that doesn't work, then you have to look for another example, another another way to do it. Um, throwing people into cages only hardens actual criminals and criminalizes innocent people that are not really guilty of anything. Also, you know, we have 40,000 highway deaths per year in the U.S. thanks to our government roads. All right, so here's two practical things that you can look at and say, here's, here's what government is supposed to be doing for us and they're failing. They're supposed to be fighting crime and bringing justice. They're not. They're creating the opposite. They're supposed to be, you know, the roads argument. They're supposed to be providing us with safe roads, and yet they're doing the opposite of that. So we have the moral argument and the practical argument. The government has no moral right to do the things that it's doing, and when it tries to do it, it fails. So the anarchist has two more options. You can make money from the failures of government and funnel some of that money back into our cause. And fourth, you can assist the government in its path of self-destruction. All right, So four things I'm leaving you with that the anarchists should do. Educate people on the evils of government, the moral argument. Point out the failures of government when government fails to do the things that they claim exclusive right to do. That's the practical argument. Three, make money from the failures of government funneling some of that back into the cause and four assist the government in its path to destruction and the fourth one the fourth one is what this series is going to be about folks thanks for listening today and remember to visit badquaker.com where liberty is our mission